Hi, welcome back to First Principles. This is episode two, and coincidentally, episode two of the Bitcoin season. During my journey of uh, my Bitcoin journey of the past few years, I had a couple of aha moments. One of those was understanding exactly what money is and what it's not. There's a such thing as good money and bad money. So let's take a look at first principles. Let's take a first principles look at money itself. So if you're like me, and probably everyone in the world is, you never went to a money class in school. You may have had economics or math or even accounting, but never did school or never, at, at no point did we ever discuss or get educated upon the history and the reasons for money. And it's been around for so long that we all just seem to take it for granted. So let's take a look at that and, and talk about what makes good money and what makes bad money or what, what really are the things about money that makes it money. Well, in no particular order, uh, money has some attributes. Good money has some attributes. So let's go through a few of those. Scarcity. We don't want people just making copies of money anytime and whenever they wish. It needs to be scarce, right? Uh, durability. It should be resistance to decay or from wearing down easily. It needs to stay durable. Divisibility. If you only need a half a dollar to buy something, can I just spend 50 cents? Verifiable. How easy is it to verify that it's authentic? It's got to be real. Portability. Transactions occur over distances. And even if you're right next to the person or you're handing them money, it's still a distance. But more often than not in our life, we are using debit cards and other things. And we need to send money maybe to the next state or the next county or across, across the world. So it, it needs to be portable. It can't be extremely heavy, extremely large and it needs to be able to be transported efficiently. Fungibility. Is one unit equal in value to another unit? Are they interchangeable on whatever that piece of money may be? But all monies, including Bitcoin, have varying degrees of these ideal attributes. And we'll refer back to these uh, during the season to see where we are from time to time. So money has been around a long time, tens of thousands of years. We really don't know how old money is because the true origin of it precedes written history. Basically and historically, there are two types of early money. It's money of account and money of exchange. And we still use those today, but we're not even sure which one came first. So let's talk about money of account. So money of account is a ledger with debits and credits, which is a method of counting and recording transactions such as sheep, wheat, or even gold. Even before the invention of paper, much less QuickBooks, these ledgers were kept on what were called tally sticks. Now, tally sticks were used at least as long as 30,000 years ago by humans during the late Stone Age in places all over the world. For the entire history of humans, technology has made many improvements to life, right? The tally stick was no exception, and an upgraded, 
latest, greatest, new and improved split tally stick was invented. And the splittable tally stick provided both the creditor and the debtor with transaction receipts. One of the most prominent and longest uses was when Henry I introduced the split tally around 1100 AD to verify and confirm and to prove the payment and receipt of taxes. The way it worked is like this. Now, wait a minute. Let Mark Chabot has a much better explanation of this than I do, so take a listen to this. The artifacts in question were humble sticks of willow wood, about 20 centimetres long, called exchequer tallies. The willow was harvested along the banks of the River Thames, not far from the Palace of Westminster in central London. Tallies were a way of recording debts with a system that was sublimely simple and effective. The stick would contain a record of the debt, carved into the wood. It might say, for example, nine pounds, four shillings, fourpence from Falk Bassett for the farm of Wickham. Falk Bassett, by the way, might sound like a character from Star Wars, but was in fact a Bishop of London in the 13th century. He owed his debt to King Henry III. Now comes the elegant part. The stick would be split in half, down its length from one end to the other. The debtor would retain half, called the foil. The creditor would retain the other half, called the stock. Even today, British bankers use the word stocks to refer to debts of the British government. Because willow has a natural and distinctive grain, the two halves would match only each other. Of course, the Treasury could simply have kept a record of these transactions in a ledger somewhere. But the tally stick system enabled something radical to occur. If you had a tally stock showing that Bishop Bassett owed you £5, then unless you worried that Bishop Bassett wasn't good for the money, the tally stock itself was worth close to £5 in its own right. If you wanted to buy something, you might well find that the seller would be pleased to accept the tally stock as a safe and convenient form of payment. The tally sticks became a kind of money, and a particularly instructive kind of money too, because the tally stick shows us clearly what money really is. It's debt, a particular kind of debt, one that can be traded freely, circulating from person to person until it's utterly separated from Bishop Bassett and a farm in Wickham. We don't have a good sense of whether tally sticks were in fact widely traded or not, for reasons that will become clear. Those tally sticks, by the way, met an unfortunate end. The tally stick system was finally abolished and replaced by paper ledgers in 1834, after decades of attempts to modernise. To celebrate, it was decided to burn the sticks, six centuries of irreplaceable monetary records, in a coal-fired stove in the House of Lords, rather than letting parliamentary staff take them home for firewood. Now, burning a cartload or two of tally sticks in a coal-fired stove is a wonderful way to start a raging chimney fire. So it was that the House of Lords, then the House of Commons, then almost the entire Palace of Westminster, a building as old as the tally stick system itself, were burned to the ground. Perhaps the patron saints of monetary history were having their revenge. All of that destruction due to changing the way a ledger was kept. Hmm. Anyway, uh, 
Bitcoin works in a similar manner to a tally stick or even a modern day ledger, except that it creates thousands of copies of the ledger across the entire world. We'll get more to that. We'll get more into that in a later episode. Anyway, from a good money perspective, tally sticks are portable and verifiable, but not much else. Money of exchange is the everyday method of transaction. A dollar here, a quarter and two nickels here for something like, I don't know, uh, a candy bar. But historically, money has been a bunch of different things like livestock, grains, cowrie shells, or what North American Indians called wampum. When the European settlers arrived in North America, the Native Americans gave them wampum as a gift. Now, wampum beads were made by hand from whelk and clamshells. These shells were in geographically limited places and only the coastal tribes had access to them. Furthermore, the beads were labor intensive to make using only the stone tools the Indians had at the time. So they were scarce, a nice attribute of good money and the beads actually were proof of work. Stick a pin in that, we'll get back to proof of work in a later episode. So the Native Americans did not use wampum beads as money per se. The beads strung into necklaces were not only used as gifts, but also as a statement of authority or position within their society. Messengers used them to prove that they had authority to carry messages between tribes, which is a sort of a solution to the Byzantine generals problem. Stick a pin in that one too, we'll circle back around to that issue in a later episode. To the Indians, wampum carried a lot of special value for a number of reasons, and they accepted wampum from the settlers in exchange for property, which sealed its fate as money. If you remember, the purchase of Manhattan was beads, and that's what they were. They were wampum beads, or wampum necklaces. Remember that attribute about good money having scarcity? Well, the settlers from Europe quickly realized that they didn't have to trade for wampum. They could just apply good old European technology to it, and soon they were producing unlimited supplies of wampum with practically no effort and at little cost. By the early 1700s, there was so much wampum that it was worthless as a currency. Presumably, wampum was divisible, but like livestock, say a pig, it was probably not fungible. Fungible means that it can be interchanged and replaced by another identical item. So if you've ever heard the saying, a dollar is a dollar is a dollar, all $1 bills are worth $1. But in the case of livestock, your cow may be two years old, which would make it presumably more valuable than a 10-year-old cow. Or maybe your cow is sick, which temporarily or maybe unfortunately uh, would make it worth zero at some point in the near futures or near future. Cows ain't fungible. I'm no wampum expert, but I would suspect that wampum is not as fungible as a dollar and probably carried more or less value depending on the type of shell or craftsmanship the beads possessed. So let's skip forward to the money we know today, or at least to the coins and paper that was backed by something of value. For centuries, Coins made from so-called rare metals like gold and silver served as money. Gold coins were both money of exchange and money of value themselves because the coin could always be melted down and sold as gold. 
Coins made of precious metals for a few hundred years had an inherent weakness, though. Scarcity and fungibility issues plagued coins for hundreds of years due to clipping or shaving the edges of coins of some of their content. Since there was less gold in the coins, as the coins were slightly shaved frequently by their holders, their inherent value became less and less. This happened enough that clipped and shaved coins drove good coins out of circulation due to this thing called Gresham's Law. Basically, since unadulterated coins were valuable to hoard or melt into bullion and spend, the bad money drove out the good money, and the bad money depreciated in value as the coins became more and more shaved and clipped. In other words, at that time, a gold coin ain't a gold coin ain't a gold coin. By the way, this is why milled edges were invented. Milled edges made it easy to see if a coin had been shaved, thereby stopping the practice and stabilizing the value of the coins. The quarters and dimes in your pocket today even have milled edges, although the metal content is not worth shaving them anyway. So coins for centuries had this inherent value to them, but what about paper money and the coins we use today? There is no inherent value of a piece of printed paper money and there ain't copper in that penny anymore. Believe it or not, paper money has existed in one form or another for over 2,000 years, but for much of that time, they were backed by precious metals. They were a promissory note or a promise to pay up on demand a certain amount of precious metal, usually gold or silver, to the bearer. So if you've ever seen a silver certificate, it, it clearly states that you can redeem for silver upon demand. Well, this idea started to go south about 80 years ago when the U.S. outlawed the private ownership of gold. Here's how that happened. In 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR, decided to raise government spending in order to spend the country out of the Depression. Unfortunately, the Federal Reserve Act of 1914 required Federal Reserve notes, which is the money we still use today, it, was, it required Federal Reserve notes to be backed by gold to the tune of 40% of the money in circulation. So yeah, those printing presses could spit out a lot of dollar bills really cheap, but that pesky law would mean the government would need a lot of gold. So we outlawed gold. You know some of those photos you see of people standing in line to withdraw their money from the bank or making a, a bank run from those days in the 30s? Well, guess what? Many of those photos weren't bank runs at all. They were lines of people standing in line to exchange their gold for Federal Reserve notes. So let's fast forward a few years. After World War II, it was more or less decided international trade and large bank transfers would use a gold exchange standard. The U.S. dollar was pegged to gold at $35 per ounce, and then all the other countries pegged their currency to the U.S. dollars, U.S. dollar. So this made a gold-backed U.S. dollar the official currency of the world. A curious thing happened in the 1960s, though. France came along and decided that it no longer wanted U.S. dollars to settle its debt, and they wanted the gold instead. Well, President Richard Milhouse Nixon was having none of that. What with the pesky and expensive Vietnam War and inflation problems and all, so he said, nope, we're going to temporarily 
stop international shipments of gold for a while. And we'll just keep it right here for you, safe and sound in our vault in New York City or Kentucky or, well, maybe in my desk drawer. And we'll put a sticker on it, a posty note on it that says France's gold stack. So after a couple of tries to re-index the US dollar to gold because they're spinning up those printing presses, that was finally given up. And the United States removed all references to gold from the definition of the dollar. So here we are with what is known as fiat money. Fiat money is money typically created by government decree and it has no intrinsic value. The US dollar is not backed by gold in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And remember that temporary stop on exchanging US dollars for gold? Well, obviously it's permanent now. I guess France is still waiting on theirs. But get this, since all the world's currencies are backed by US dollars, and the US dollar is backed by it's a dollar because we say it's a dollar, the entire world's money supply is backed by nothing of intrinsic value. We all just kind of agree that a dollar's worth, well, a dollar. It's like a language in its simplicity, but it has no real value. Which brings us to Bitcoin. I wish I had a cowrie shell for every time someone remarked, but a Bitcoin is not backed by anything. Let's hear some thoughts on this from Andreas Antonopoulos. That is the inconvenient truth at the core of our understanding of the world's most ancient technology, money, is that we don't understand it. We simply don't understand it. The truth is, you give money value. Why? Because you are participating in a shared hallucination with a billion and a half other people in which you firmly believe that tomorrow this money will still have value. That if you go to the store and present one of these colored pieces of paper, someone will give you eggs, chicken, spices, water, sugar, salt, housing, health care, something for this colored piece of paper. And it really takes an incredible hallucination for us to believe this. Because the paper itself is worthless. It's pretty, but it's not pretty at that level. Nobody gives you products and services because of how pretty it is. Right? That shared hallucination took hundreds of years to be established. And it started at some point, except you can't email gold, and you can't email Bitcoin. And suddenly, you notice that this thing may have a bigger impact than any of us participating in it could even imagine. And people will point to that and they'll say, it's fake money. It's not real. And the market will give it a value. And in the end, that value is the truth. You can use currency controls propaganda, lies, restrictions, laws. We see that in Venezuela. Right? They're doing all of those things. They're pointing at Bitcoin and they're saying, that's fake money. 
And anybody who's involved in Bitcoin in that space points right back at Venezuela and goes, oh no, yours is the fake money. This shit is real. Because I can buy food with it. From Amazon, delivered to Colombia and smuggled across the border, but I can still buy food with it. Fake money can be resolved by the market. We are at the very beginning. This is not an investment opportunity. This is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This is a technology. It is a technology that has radical, disruptive implications for the world at large. It creates, for the first time in human history, the possibility of the free flow of money to anyone, anywhere, at any time, without any restrictions, controls, or central authority. It creates the possibility of the free flow of money for all of humanity. The good news is that Bitcoin is scarce, very scarce. In contrast to the fiat U.S. dollar, which can be printed as much as the U.S. government wishes, Bitcoin is limited to 21 million coins forever. And not only is Bitcoin scarce, it is impossible to counterfeit. Bitcoin also has this thing that we mentioned earlier called proof of work, a concept that we will cover that actually prevents it from being created out of thin air and assigning something similar to an inherent value. In other words, it, because of proof of work, it has an inherent value. So that's it for the money episode. I want to thank Andreas Antonopoulos, who graciously releases practically everything he does on a Creative Commons license for sharing. You can learn more about Andreas on his YouTube channel, A. Antonopoulos, on YouTube. Feel free to send me an email. It's tomkirkham at gmail.com. And uh, if you have any questions about this episode or any others, be sure and rate us on iTunes. It's really, really important that we get feedback, good or bad. It doesn't matter. They all improve the quality of the podcast. So stay tuned for the next episode of First Principles.